0: Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello and welcome to Engage for Success Radio and show number 389 in our weekly series. And today's show is titled Engagement is Not the Point. And We're going to be talking about how we can only transform our organizations, and importantly, the working lives of our people by transforming our leaders first. I'll be introducing our guest in a moment, but first of all, a little bit about Engage for Success. We're a not-for-profit movement. We're the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement, and we are raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country and are online, of course, and our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups are developing research, publishing case studies, and shining a light on great practice. Do visit us at engageforsuccess.org to learn more, uh, and that's where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. And our website has just been revamped, so I do... um, urge you to go and visit it. Um, uh, even if you've been visiting it before, um, go and take a look at our new website and, um, and get involved. So um, that's something for you to do. And I'm Joe Moffitt. Uh, I'm one of the regular hosts and uh, of Engage with Success Radio. And I'm also Managing Director and Founder of Woodread. Woodread is a specialist advertising agency, uh, which means that we work with clients to help them use their brands to engage their people and create high-performing cultures and places where people really want to work. And joining us today to help us navigate today's topic of engagement, is not the point, I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Nigel Gerling. Nigel is a senior consultant at um, Inspirational Development Group, but he's also been involved with the Engage of Success. Engaged the success movement uh, for many years and has been a steering group um, member of uh, the, the thought and action steering group member for a considerable time. Um, so welcome to the show, Nigel. Good to have you with us.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I think you've been you've been involved in the movement since pretty early early do- early doors, haven't you? I
1: think just after hell froze over, I think was when I started. Yeah. <laughs> I was there. I was invited by uh, David and Nita as one of the first of what they then called the Guru group right at the beginning. Yes, I've been lurking ever since.
0: Yes, I remember the guru group. I was I was a member of the guru group initially as well. And I used to, I lurked around the radio show, um, which is when I got invited to uh, come and contribute and uh, take on one of the regular host slots. So, um, yes, we had gurus and we had practitioners in the That's early right. years, didn't we? Um, yeah. And um, pleased in a way that, that those... those um, barriers have broken down now I think but Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit then Nigel um, outside of your involvement with the movement tell us and our listeners just a little bit about yourself in terms of your professional background before we get into today's
1: topic okay I'll I'll do the edited highlights because some of it's not publicly I think but uh, um, I started out as a musician touring the world in rock bands um, Mm -hmm. got RSI um, invested some of my ill-gotten gains in a a friend's organisation got made Managing Director when I hadn't got the vaguest idea what I was doing. Um, Did everything completely wrong? Eventually we had the conversation that you really need to step aside. And from that I kind of went off to study what had just gone wrong and realized that I'd done almost everything backwards. And I've spent the rest of my 40 odd years of career trying to help other leaders not to make the mistakes that I started out making. So I spent more than a decade as the Chief Exec of the uh, National Center for Strategic Leadership. And now working with Inspirational Development Group, IDG, I head up the Professional Qualification Centre, helping leaders at all levels, but particularly senior ones, to become professionally qualified and professionally developed. So that's, right. that's me.
0: Okay. So... so... Your path then, you say you did it all kind of backwards, um, your, your sort of mission is, is in a sense you want to try and help people um, avoid making the same mistakes and having to learn from experience in the sense of learning from their mistakes. You want to try and help point them in the right direction
1: in the, in the beginning, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the problems with learning by your mistakes is that other people have to suffer the consequences of your mistakes, And whilst it might be a great learning opportunity for you, what damage did you just do to the teams and leaders and organization that you've been involved in? So I'd rather people uh, learn, it's the old saying, isn't it, that a a good person learns by their mistakes, a really good person learns by the mistakes of others. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely.
0: That's what you've been doing. Excellent. So, So today's title, as I said, is Engagement is Not... Uh, and it's uh, classically uh, provocative, as I uh, as I know you like to be, Nigel. Um, and um, you know, I, I totally understand that. And we're going to be talking today about how we can only transform our organisations and the working lives of our people, so that those people are not having to suffer our mistakes. Um, by by transforming our leaders first. So um, tell us. Let, let's start off. Why why do you think leadership from the top then is is so important if we're going to create a you know better outcomes and a better world and so on in,
1: in in terms of our businesses? Yes, and there are thousands of reasons, and I won't go into all of them because we don't have time. But one particular one is that top leaders set the tone. I mm-hmm. mean, they tell people. They, they telegraph to people what really matters, what's important. And you'll often hear them saying the right things, but if every uh, communication they put out, every top level measure they've got is about money or markets, that message is heard. Everybody knows that's Mm -hmm. what they really care about. So it's, it's one thing to hear them say, you know, employees are our biggest asset, but if they don't demonstrate that by the way they behave and the things they prioritize, then everyone knows it's not true. So I think that the top tells everybody what really matters and if they, can show that this matters, everyone else will start to care, particularly the other levels of leadership.
0: And and do you think that leadership do, by and large, get the importance
1: of people? I mean, do you... I see a polarisation. What seems to have happened in the last few years is that those that do get it have really got it and moved mountains. Those Mm -hmm. that don't it might seem to me have got worse. Have got more disconnected from that reality, and and this last year or so has really pushed those things to extremes. Now, those right. that really get it have been doing lots of stuff to keep their people engaged, to help help them to feel well and on top of things and with it on it. And those that don't have been increasing surveillance, um, badgering people, pushing targets up. Um, I know one organisation where. They get a performance call in the morning, another at lunchtime, and another one at the end of the day. At what point are they supposed to actually do something?
0: And, that, and that's, you... a perfor- that's a performance call, not a so a kind of performance productivity um, yeah. keep you on your toes, stop slacking call, rather than a how are you, how are you really doing, what support can I give
1: you? Absolutely. None of that. And that's the critical difference. At the, the good end, you'll see lots of that st- sort of thing happening, where people yeah. are engaging with each other as human beings. Uh, but but at the other end, at the lower engagement end, you see people who are constantly being put under pressure because the people above them are putting them under pressure. Hence yeah. my it's got to start at the top because at the top, they're constantly driving for numbers. That resonates throughout the line, all the way down the levels yeah. of leadership. Everybody is doing that stuff because they think that's what they're supposed to be doing. Because that's the thing that gets them noticed or keeps them safe or stops them from being um, highlighted as a poor performer themselves. And that bothers me because uh, you know, the, the, the movement is quite concentrated around London a lot of the time because that's where it began. And you see less of that kind of behavior in London, but you move outside and you go into other cities or heaven forbid, rural areas, and you see a very different picture where often leaders are not trained. They're not formed. They haven't thought about this stuff in any real detail. They're just desperately trying to fight, get numbers in order to keep someone else off their back. And that's so damaging. And,
0: and I was going to ask you about the last 12 months. we've, you know, 12 months into the COVID pandemic. Today has seen the slow, gradual first tentative steps towards easing the the latest round of lockdowns that we've all been in really since Christmas and, and what, what do you think that the result has been one of polarisation then do you think it's made do you think the last 12 months has, has made the good the good better and the the bad worse
1: yes actually I do yeah I mean I see I see lots of evidence of that from organisations I talk to leaders I work with that you can see culturally organisations seem to have become bookended. Are the ones that didn't understand that culture mattered in the first place are just desperately trying to stay alive. I get that, that's a, that's a strong motivator and driver of survival but the trouble is it's sort of counterproductive because the more they strive for survival the less likely they are to survive. So you see the better ones and often it's the ones with a more diverse leadership in terms of gender, ethnicity, age, uh, experience, uh, discipline, thinking process, those kinds of things. You see those ones becoming more and more creative, and more and more human, and more and more connected to each other and to their people. And the difference is, is palpable. You can even get that difference from their websites, let alone from actually meeting or speaking to any of them. It's, it's apparent. And that's why the top leaders are so important, because if they don't understand and buy into that message, and if they don't set that tone, uh, trying to do it from the middle or the bottom, you've got a very hard job on
0: very hard job. Now it's interesting. You make the point, and I, you know, I totally get this. The, I've heard it, heard it, said before. That you know, leadership set the tone, um, and we, we, we tend as human beings to follow the behaviours of our leaders. And they, you know, if our leaders model a particular kind of behaviour, then that is followed down through line managers and team leaders to to individuals. But those leaders who don't get this. Are probably simply, have, they've simply taken their lead from the person that brought them up in the first place, aren't they?
1: Absolutely, I mean there's, there's a, a great deal of opportunity for a cycle of abuse to be created in organizations mm-hmm. where bad leaders begat other bad leaders who therefore impose that badness on other people. I mean one of the reasons I embarked on this journey as I glibly referred to earlier was because I was one of those leaders. Yeah. So when I made a managing director, I hadn't got the vaguest idea what I was to do. So I did what I saw people doing on the telly. You know, yes, region. well,
0: exactly. You, 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 I think Alan Sugar's got a lot to answer
1: for, hasn't he? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and the trouble is we fake those guys' leaders, the Nigel Cowell, uh, Simon Calder, the um, Alan yeah. Sugars, the kind of the people who are tough, driven, um, hard, dynamic, all those kinds of things. And, and we've come to learn that that's how you do it. And you know, you see the people in Dragon's Den, and frankly, most of them it's a good job. They were entrepreneurs because they'd never have made it in in an actual organization if they didn't own it. Because a lot of their behaviours are bullying, coercive, um, entirely monetary. And people who follow those people often believe that that's how you make a lot of money. Well, it might be, mm-hmm. but but to what end? You know, where yeah. does that leave us? you can make so a lot
0: of money they're, they're, that's, that's the point I was going to say to you, that, you know, they, are, they are deemed to be and seem to be materially successful people and so okay. that's something people aspire to um, and think that that's the route the route to, to success in business
1: is, is to well, yeah. follow that style yeah. exactly so and that's the trouble is it's about the definition of success isn't it, for those people the definition of success is material how much money do they make And as a consequence, Mm. with the economic meltdown of 13 years ago, that once that becomes the benchmark, you know, the more money you make, the better you are, then you end up with people who are entirely driven by self-interest. And we see a lot in organizations, you get people who are, they are incentivized to win, usually competitively and at the expense of their colleagues. So what kind of culture does that create? It creates a dog-eat-dog culture. And that's yes. the antithesis of engagement in most cases. We want people to feel part of a healthy community and to collaborate and to share and to support each other. It's very hard to do that when it's not in your interest to support this other person because they'll actually steal the prizes that you want. Mm. So no, and that, that's why it gets, it, that tone is set at the top. Because if that's the way you reward people, then you create mercenaries and a dogfight. And I see that in many organisations. I mean, not as many as I used to, I think, it's fair to say. And when I started out doing this stuff 40 years ago, that was the prevailing style. You know, during the years of, of the Thatcherite movement, etc., cetera, the, the style was wear the right braces, drive the right car, uh, and, and fight to the death to make sure that you get your bigger than your share. And that didn't do us the world of good, as subsequent <laughs> social impact yes. showed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we are, to some extent, in danger of doing it again. Uh, and, you know, this, this kind of last year where lots of organisations have really suffered financially, and the whole country, the government has suffered financially, there's a mm-hmm. temptation now for people to, to go back to the hard nose, drive for numbers, incentivise people to, to bring home the vacant kind of thinking in order to recover the lost ground. And my fear yeah. is that what we actually end up doing is as we did in, in the me- years immediately after the meltdown, promoting sociopaths and, and psychotics who are happy to, to stamp on other people at the expense of people who might actually have supported others to, to enable them to do the best work.
0: Yes. So, so coming back to your your initial start point, um, engagement is not the point and that what we're wanting are better organisations doing better work with better mm-hmm. outcomes to create a better world. Um, Engagement is just part of that process. And, and you said leaders, it's really important that we have leaders who set the tone from the top. But yeah, does that mean true. that we kind of put engagement or we'll talk of the word engagement to one side? You know, what about engagement surveys, for example? And, you know, should, are, they, are they kind of um, surplus to requirements?
1: Um, we're not going to mention my address anywhere on here, because I'm sure there'll be people in the media who won't be killed. Um, it's, <laughs> a, it's such a, um, a, a big market. My concern isn't about engagement surveys. I think they're very useful and they do give people very good information. My concern is when that becomes it, and I see that in some organisations who who actually think they have an engagement initiative because they do an annual survey and respond to it, mm. as if somehow that's the whole story. And it's just one part of a very large jigsaw. There's no point in asking people how they feel unless you care about the answer and care about doing something about it for those people, not to improve your scores. Mm. You see in in organizations, quite often people are are very concerned about the scores in their area if they perceive that they're going to be blamed if those scores aren't good. And then you see them do all kinds of things to kind of massage those scores to the right place. Now, I was doing some work with an organisation probably three or four years ago now where uh, the scores on their surveys were for leadership were actually very good until the chief executive of that organisation moved on and suddenly the scores dropped through the floor and on conversation in focus groups they were afraid to tell the truth previously. Really? So the scores they were getting was a kind of self-preservation uh, score. Because they knew that they would be a witch hunter and then if they were found out, they'd be down the road. And that is the problem. Um, I once heard a chief executive, this is a few years ago now, say, um, I'm, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I just need to know whose fault it was. <laughs> it's a favourite phrase of mine.
0: <laughs> yeah. Lovely. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. So you've got to, it's right. about actively listening to what your people are saying. Uh, rather yeah. than, Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's well, interesting, I, I often talk about the frustration of calling, appointing an employee engagement manager, or, you well, know, because taking that, that's a job, it's done, it's a survey, and therefore we have done engagement, and clearly that's not remotely close to what this is all about at all, is it? And we've
1: been been—we've been here before, that's what happened with the original formation of HR, and then the other leaders could immediately... Um, relinquish any responsibility for their people because there was a department to blame now
0: it happened yeah. with quality
1: in the early days of the S570 and I said no, thousand bender now you had somebody who was whose fault it was if the quality was bad and it wasn't you thank god yeah. mm. Um mm. and it, it is human nature for people to want to get out from underneath things when they're all always under pressure to do more yeah. You the aunts have been under pressure for a decade or more um well longer probably and so there's there's never enough people to do the work properly so we end up with a kind of minimum viable process where we do mm-hmm. what we can get away with doing and anything that isn't fundamentally necessary to survival therefore gets engineered out you know and caring about people and improving people's well-being and mental health those are things that organizations don't have to do mm-hmm. so to you mentioned
0: because... HR Nigel you mentioned HR just now and <laughs> um, is it, is it not their responsibility to, to push this?
1: Um, well, certainly a lot of them think so, and a lot of their board <laughs> think so. Um, but, you know, going back to what you were just saying just now, clearly it can't be their responsibility to push it because that allows everyone else to, to, to abdicate responsibility. It might well be yeah. their job to report on it, to measure it, to support people in, in doing something about it, but what actually happens is that it just gets handed to them like pass the parcel. But
0: is it, is it their job to persuade leadership that they need to take this seriously? Who, who, who mm. is going to persuade the uh, Alan mm. Sugars of this world? And I use that term in a, you know, a sort of uh, yes. the loosest sense. Yeah. Who is going to persuade the recalcitrant leadership team that actually they're doing this all wrong if it's not HR?
1: I would love to be a fly on the wall when an HR director tried to persuade Alan Sugar that this was the thing they needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> so well, exactly. How but,
0: do they do it, when especially if they don't even have a seat on the exact team?
1: Yeah, exactly so. And uh, they can't is the short answer. They've got no chance. Uh, because if you look at the boards of a lot of organisations, you can tell a lot about what they care about from the composition of the board. Mm. Now, every single organisation probably in existence in the West at least, has a finance director or yeah. financial controller. But how many of them have got a people and talent director? There, yeah. there are lots, lot, but proportionally, yeah. I bet it's less than one in 10 or even one in 20. And that tells you how seriously they take this. It's not yeah. worth having somebody at that level. Therefore, it's not a strategic issue. I mean, that's... So, I, because I, I do get accused occasionally of being a, an HR assassin uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's not really true though I do have elements of it. Um, my problem is that, that HR tends to be targeted at doing a number of things they can't do and therefore end up doing the best they can with what they've got. Um, okay. You know, so Leadership development is, for instance which I, is, I am obviously passionate about, it's my life's work. Uh, how many L&D or um, Learning and or Leadership and HR functions actually have sufficient budget to enable them to do it properly. Hardly any. Um, How many of them, even if they do have the budget, have the expertise to do it properly? Hardly any. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes an easy place to park things, I find. And that's true of a number of, of, of departments, but I think it's particularly true in our context about HR. They are often an easy way of lumbering someone else with a responsibility that actually belongs to everyone. And boards rarely, in my experience, take this seriously. So I've actually heard in a board meeting for that, heard them blaming HR for their poor engagement scores. Well, of all the things you could blame HR for, you can't blame them for that. And you say they're they're often the ones who are responsible for
0: measuring it and reporting on it.
1: Yes, Um, they they suffer from the messenger. Hmm. and uh, it's quite rare in my experience for boards to have the kind of authenticity and courage to look in that mirror and see themselves clearly and truthfully
0: yeah uh, so, if, so this if, is what this is the point I wanted to get to really who Does the leadership slash board the, you know, the exec team, the leadership team, the exec team, and or the board have to have a moment of self realization, or is there how do they? How do they come to come to realise that actually the way they've been doing things forever and the, the, the behaviours they've been modelling because that's the way they were treated this cycle of abuse almost that you talked about? I, you know how do they? How do they come to identify this as a, that they've got a problem, mm. um, and then know what yeah. to do about it? You know who's going to point it out to them if they if they can't see themselves?
1: I'm doing my best. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yeah, but you're
0: you're a team of one, Nigel. Um,
1: yeah, but um, I think it's all there's a, there's a kind of a connection here with the if you like the Direct Line model. Uh, until oh, wow. Direct Line came along, hardly any insurance companies took seriously the idea of customer service and speed.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, within
1: six months of a, a firm like Direct Line being there, uh, all of a sudden, bang, they all had. In customer experience programs, they all tried to speed themselves up. They all tried to focus on how to communicate effectively because competitive market pressure forced them into it. Mm-hmm. And that might be the case. Here. Now, it only takes one organization in a sector to pick up on this and do something about it and make a difference. And I think our greatest hope here is talent wars. Um, mm-hmm. that, that talented people, particularly younger talented people, won't work for an organization that is poor at this if they can possibly help it. So, you know, a lot of those organizations that have old-school command and control cultures that are driven by the hard numbers, that don't understand about enabling and supporting and engaging their people, will already, actually, start to lose the talent fight. Good people will will drift away. Uh, New good people won't join them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, We saw this happening. I remember watching an interview with Steve Jobs years ago uh, about Apple saying, uh, and the, the interviewer said, "Jim, how do you manage to uh, find all of these really great, talented people?" He said, "We don't have to; they come to us. So we've got a we've got a waiting list of about 5,000 of people that want to work for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that's not an accident. No, that's a cultural it's an,
0: it's an interesting story, though, isn't it, the Apple one? Because I mean, from a cultural perspective, they they did an awful lot of stuff right and did an attracted talent, like you've said, but as an as an individual." Um, <laughs> he was yes, not he, the <laughs> he was he, he was, was not great necessarily great. one of the role models you'd like to single out as being the greatest uh, yeah. proponent uh, of leadership. Yeah,
1: because despite that, the organisation did get a lot of things right, and yeah. that goes back to about the Alan Sugars of this world. He had some very very good people, like Sir Johnny Ive, around him, who mm. uh, who, who pushed him in the right direction, because mm. he. He, I know legendarily he wasn't particularly good at listening but he did end up listening uh, because he didn't only want his own way, what he wanted was things done quickly um, and brilliantly and if and he always thought that his way was probably the best way of doing that but, but he was persuadable to change it um, and did get persuaded to change it quite a lot and it's interesting to look at how they've changed as an organisation since since his sad demise Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: and also how they behaved when he died, and the whole organisation came to a grinding halt. And everybody went outside. And they all did kind of memorial eulogies about him, um, and they were open about the fact that he was uh, he was a bit marmite, but they all loved him for what he stood for, for what he achieved, for what he helped inspire them to do. So you know, I think it's a, it's not a, just a case of appointing somebody who's lovely. No, no. That's, do, too, really. too,
0: that's too pink and fluffy and easy to say, isn't it, really? So, yeah,
1: we what happens when you say that.
0: So how – we've only got a few minutes left, um, and I just want to pick up on a couple of points, really. So once our exec team have realised they've looked in the mirror, or someone's come along and pointed a few home truths out to them, realised that they need to become more engaging – uh, in order to deliver a more successful, sustainable organization for, their, for them, themselves, their shareholders, and their people, how do they go about developing more engaging leaders? Quick quick, uh,
1: couple of steps, and then I want to ask you one final question before we finish. Um, the short answer is we need to start treating leadership as a profession. We call it one, but we don't treat it as one. So you do. Know, right a teacher, an engineer, an architect, a pilot, a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, any of those kind of things, you've got to be professionally qualified in order to be allowed to do it. We mm-hmm. think any a CEO of an organization, as long well as they come from the right place and have the right kind of credentials. And that's not good enough. You know, people need to, this is one of the most complicated jobs you'll ever have. People need to be trained in how to do it and to continue their kind of professional development throughout their career to keep developing it because it's changing all the time. Those last years yeah. should have taught us that, if nothing else. If nothing else, uh, yeah, should, sure. And, and that's not generally how it's viewed. People get there through experience, track record, and connection. And how is that going to work now? Experience and track record of what? It's a world that no longer exists. Um, if we want to be more engaging and to inspire and, and to innovate and to bring people together to work, do their best work, are those people going to be the ones that will do that? We need to embark on a process of refreshing, rejuvenating, renewing, and replacing, if necessary, a lot of our senior leader cohort. Maybe I've said it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And we've got one minute left. And and what I'd like to ask you is for one thing, Nigel. If there was one behavior that you would say is the key one, to being an engaging leader that was kind of absolutely, you know, deal-breaker if you haven't got it, what would it be?
1: I suppose it would be caring how your people feel. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, that's, that's a, an outcome I suppose to a degree but I, I was asked not very many weeks ago by a board saying how do we show people that we care? To which my answer was actually care. Actually care. Ugh. Yeah. If you actually yeah. care about your people, they'll know. If you don't, yeah. there's nothing you can do to fake it, they'll know that too. So, you know, actually caring about your people as human beings, not just as solutions to a problem or providers of earnings per share, but as actual individuals, all the way down the line. If leaders care about their people as people, everything changes.
0: Yes, lovely. Thank you. So it's practice what you preach, practice that caring in the way that you act. Nigel, thank you very much. I just want to say, as we've run out of time now, um, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I think it's been stimulating, it's been provocative, it's everything that was promised. Um, you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We've got Nigel coming back for more um, on the 10th of May and the 14th of June. Uh, so put those dates in your diary because we'll be, we'll be taking these conversations on to um, another, uh, another aspect of it. So we'll be welcoming Nigel back then. Um, as I said, please go and visit our new revamped website. Um, the other thing to say is it's our 10-year anniversary. Um, as we said at the start of the show, Nigel's been involved with the movement since the year dot um, earlier than me, I think. But we are now celebrating. 10 years since the launch of the Engage with Success movement and beginning a series of celebrations and content. Uh, so do go to the website, have a look at our search 10 years on, um, and share your stories, and make your contributions as to how you think the world of work has changed in the last 10 years, and what you would like to see um, it becoming in the, in the years ahead, and hopefully with a, a good spattering of some of the, the learnings that Nigel shared with us this afternoon. So thank you very much for that. Um, Nigel, Nigel Gerling, Senior Consultant at Inspirational Development Group, thank you for joining us today. We'll welcome you back next month, and thank you for listening, and um, it just remains for me to say goodbye.
1: Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice
0: for people who believe there's a better way to work.